Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today I'm joined by James Meek, who has written an epic essay in the current LRB about the NHS. It's past, it's present, it's future. It's essential reading, it's essential listening. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. James Meek is a prize-winning novelist. The People's Act of Love, among many others, was longlisted for the Booker Prize. He's also a prize-winning journalist. He won the Orwell Prize in 2015 for his book about the privatisation of Britain. He's sitting opposite me, so I don't want to embarrass him, but he is in many ways the Orwell of our times in that he writes about the country we live in and the services we all rely on. And he tells us things that we took for granted, what it's like to work in these industries, what it's like to rely on them. He's written in the LRB about fishing, about farming, about the postal service, transport, housing, which we may get onto and the NHS. And we're going to start with the NHS and then we'll see where we get to. So the the piece, James, is set, like a novel is set, in Leicestershire. That's its location. It's a county that people who don't live in probably don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about. It's Middle England. And it's also, as you say, a kind of microcosm of the whole country. So just tell us a bit about how Leicestershire can stand in for, for England. The only way it's not like Britain is that it's uh, is that it's landlocked. But what's interesting about it is that at the centre of the county you have this city which is tremendously diverse ethnically. It's got a very large Hindu population, very large Muslim population, very large Sikh population, and all sorts of other uh, nationalities. It has a minority of people who describe themselves as, as white British. And that's Leicester. And that's Leicester. That is the city, about 350,000 people. It used to be a big industrial centre. Now it's, it's thriving in different ways. It's also quite young. It does have pockets of extreme deprivation. It's a bit like London, in a way. It's like a little London. And then outside the city, you have this completely different land of, on the one hand, fox hunting squires and rich pensioners in adorable little villages, but also small post-industrial towns, more pockets of, of poverty and, and anomie, which is like, like England today. The other point about these two worlds of of Leicestershire which you can extend out to to England as a whole is that where Leicestershire is very young demographically and a lot of young families and a lot of the health problems of the young the county is demographically much much older the population is is sort of inching up where Leicestershire is racing ahead but that increase is not in the working age population the working age population is is falling so it's almost like one county, two systems, really. And you're writing about the NHS there, not because Leicestershire is the place where it's falling apart. I mean, you didn't go to find the kind of hospitals no. right on the edge. This isn't a kind of mid-staff story. Absolutely. This is emblematic. This is, yes, so just although tell- I think they felt that I was coming to... I, I was coming like the, uh, the inspector in Google, you know, to find out what was going on. But no, you're absolutely right. I was looking for, not for a, a catastrophe... But nor was I looking for somewhere that the NHS centrally 
would like to offer you as look at this as an exemplar of how well we're doing with our with our changes and our reforms. This was just the idea that um, you could go in at any point and find a story that was representative of how the NHS is today. So you describe lots of things in this essay, but one of the things that comes across is there are, I mean, there are all these pressures on the health service, and we'll get on to the ageing population in a bit, but there are kind of two things that seem to be driving reform, and they connect, and in the minds of some people, they ought to be the same thing, because they're both sort of about efficiency. So one is the political imperative, which is essentially cost-cutting, I mean, to deliver this cheaper, and it's a sort of austerity narrative. And then the other one is to deliver it better, that is to integrate it, the word integration comes up a lot, to connect hospital care with social care and community care. And for some people within the NHS, there's this kind of holy grail that these two things could somehow, because they're both forms of efficiency, they could somehow go together and you describe a world in which they never do. I mean, is that a fair summary of it, that they're always slightly pulling in different directions. I think you could make that general point about many, perhaps even all, administrative reforms. There's always that danger that you set out with the plan to make things better and cheaper. And somehow, by the time you come out the other side, the cheaper thing is, is always the one that survives and the, and the making it better just has to sort of tuck in underneath it. Um, but yes, it's particularly acute in terms of the NHS. So, so in the ideal version of this, it would sort of happen magically simultaneously that somehow the better service would be cheaper because people would be being treated in their homes. And you talk about the sort of virtual bed system where you have a hospital, which isn't actually a hospital because people remain in their homes and then they're visited there. But it doesn't all happen together. It happens in sequence. And it's the sequence that seems to keep messing it up. That is, if you go for the cheaper first, you'll never get to the integration and if you go for the integration first, it is more expensive to start with. I mean, that seems to be the chicken and egg thing that, that they never get round. Well, the integration and the, the putting more services out into the community are, are slightly different things. So you have primary care, which is the GPs and the community nurses and so on, people who are either in situ or, or they're driving around to visit people in their homes. And then you have the big hospitals where people go when they've got something seriously wrong with them. You can have a greater integration in the sense of the GPs and the hospital staff working together more closely without really changing anything, uh, especially since we are coming from a situation where these services were literally torn apart in an earlier reform in an effort to try and create this fake wannabe private system inside a public system of contracting between the different parts. So you can still integrate that, and, and you should. And that, um, in a way, would be process- going back before the reform. Yes, exactly. So you, you are kind of returning to something more like a less internally competitive, more harmonious NHS. But then there's this question of, well, we've got too many people going to hospital who don't really need to go. There is an objective fact there that a lot of elderly people who currently go to hospital for quite minor ailments because there's just this fear that they're a little bit fragile and any small thing could tip them over into a situation where they would get radically worse and it's better off for them to be in hospital. There's a lot of evidence that in fact in many cases the thing that is more likely to tip them over into crisis is actually going to hospital whether it's because they they catch an infection or something that 
people talk a lot about is this idea of being sort of a habituated to domestic life, that having gone along very comfortably in your own house, as you get more and more frail, suddenly you fall over, you have to wait several hours for help, you're back on your feet, but you don't really trust yourself anymore. You don't trust your surroundings. Everything has become that little bit more hostile. So you're taking the hospital. What they're looking for is some way to get over these these small domestic crises for frail people. And it's the thought that if you can stop elderly people going to hospital, you get over the biggest barrier, which is once they're in, it's much harder to get them out. Yes, I mean, so, right. exactly. so it's that's, sort of preemptive. That's... It's sort of yes. the most important thing is to stop the initial move into hospital. Yes, but as you rightly pointed out, if you make that your mantra, if you say home first, then you're already moving a little step away from simply looking at that specific problem, that specific limited fixed problem of quite a large number of elderly, frail people who have domestic crises, stay at home rather than a hospital. If you then transfer that into this great theory of home first and start applying it to everything, then the danger is you start trying to do things for people at home, which either will cost a lot more or will be much worse because you haven't got the resources. And that then does then come up against the cost cutting. Exactly, because exactly. That because final even version... as they are trying to cut costs, they're actually increasing their costs. Either in the interim, while they have this sort of double running, while they get the system bedded in, or in the long term, simply because if you have a large rural area and you're trying to pretend that you've got a, a virtual hospital, for example, spread out across a thousand square miles, and you don't put in three or four or five times as many staff as you would have in a 30-person ward where they were all in one room. Then, and as you uh, say, it doesn't snow inside it, hospitals. It doesn't snow inside hospitals now. It does snow in Leicestershire. So how much of this is now... It's trying to get past an earlier set of reforms that really fragmented the system. And it's part of it is trying to piece it back together. But it's still clear from the way you write about it, there are these targets, as well, the way that this organisation frames its imperatives tends to be through targets. And these targets are still pulling people in different directions. So there is, however much integration there is, there is still that sense that the targets are at odds with each other. The targets are not so much of a problem amongst all the the bureaucracy that they have to deal with. It's more the contract. It's the fact that this essential problem with the way that the last set of reforms set things up, you have two sets basically of, of administrators, the hospital administrators and the GP administrators, let's put it that way. The GP administrators have to order up services from the hospitals. So it's in the interest of the GPs, because of their budgets, to try and order as, as few services as possible. It's in the interest of the hospitals to do as many procedures as possible, because every time they do a procedure, whether it's an operation or, or, or a birth or a, a sewing somebody up after an accident, they get paid. So you have two completely opposed sets of incentives, and yet it's all within the same overall state budget. And this is even without considering the interests of the patients. And from the very beginning of these uh, reforms, the Lansley reforms instituted under David Cameron in the early 2010s, there was this concern that might it not be in the interests of GPs you know, not to send a patient 
to the hospital if it was going to cost them money. Not the doctor personally, but the, the organisation. Particularly okay. since the GPs not having the administrative experience to actually um, do this themselves went to ex-NHS employees, managers, private companies in order to, to actually do this commissioning for them. And this week, Lansley himself, I mean, you'd have to have a heart of stone, I think, <laughs> not to feel sorry for him, although... But he, we discover he has bowel cancer, and he's saying that um, in other parts of the UK, in Scotland, I think he was saying it would have been picked up quicker, and the riposte from at least one Labour MP is, well, it's the fault of your reforms. Hard to know, what, hard to know what to say to yes, that. Yes, um, yes, who knows, who knows. Uh, so it's about budgets rather than targets in a yes, way. Yes, I mean, if you like, it is about targets, but it's specifically about financial targets. Um, and... Uh, you, uh, as, as opposed to the old kind of getting waiting list down targets. Those, those targets are still there, but... But um, they're not driving this big tension. I think tension. the people who complain about it's all about targets forget that there was a reason that those targets yeah. got put in. You don't know how many people are dying and say, well, we want to have fewer people dying. If you don't know how long people are waiting for things, if it's all a bit vague in each area and you can't compare one area to another... I think also there are obviously bureaucratic problems with, with the sort of form filling that comes with these targets. I can imagine a much worse situation without having them. But the, the problem at the moment is specifically the financial targets. Both sides of the commissioning contract system are in the red. It's all breaking down. This whole idea of, of having tariffs for each procedure isn't really functioning anymore. The system's in full retreat, really, which is remarkable. I mean, we, we have to wait and see how this plays out. But at the moment, it does look very much as if the Conservative government is actually trying to bring in something that is a little bit more like the NHS as it used to be before the Conservatives reformed it. Because you wrote in the LRB about the NHS about seven years ago, I think, at the start of the coalition government. Exactly, yeah. So I think it was right at the birth of the Lansley reforms Indeed. and that piece in some ways it had a different emphasis because it was about the impact of these ideas many of them brought in from the United States you had this line in it that if you want to understand what's going on that there, there's politics and there's electoral changes and there's bureaucracy but underneath it there's a kind of subterranean power of ideas and it takes 20-30 years it kind of reminded me of the story people tell about neoliberalism and the Montpellerin society and Hayek and took from the late 40s right the way through a kind of generational shift but these things penetrate right the way through and that you were writing at a point where the NHS had just become now driven by a set of ideas almost without the politicians having made a conscious decision to adopt them. Well anthropologically it makes sense in fact it's it's hard to imagine how it could be any other way I mean you've got an organisation, the NHS, for example, is the biggest, but there are other examples. It is run by people who do not change every time there's a change of government. It's not run by the politicians. The politicians direct it at arm's length, but it's not actually run by them. So you have people who have careers and they, over 20, 30, 40 years, they form ideas, they take on ideas, they don't necessarily let these ideas go. And in the writing I've done about... Uh, Britain in the past 15 years, from the railways to the post office to the NHS, I've been struck by how seldom people actually talk about politicians. People who are talking about how this was done or how that was done, 
they don't say, oh, Tony Blair did this, um, oh, the rottle started with David Cameron. They just talk about the thing, the, the change that happened, the system that happened, all these people lost their jobs, this was built, that was sold. It's as if the politicians are just this sort of dressing on, on the surface of, of a deeper and, and longer process, which, again, is inevitable, really, because the cycle of investment and training and gaining experience and going from planning something to actually see it reach full fruition is so much longer than the four or five year lifespan of any one government. And it is a problem for a modern technological society which rests on the foundation of very complex public services, whether they're provided privately or, or by the state that you have these 20, 30-year lifespans. I mean, this, this new nuclear power station, for example, that they're building in Somerset, they first started talking about it 10, 20 years ago, probably earlier. Um, it will be functioning uh, for 50 years. So that's probably talking about a 70-year lifespan for an entire project. It's a very dangerous project. It's a very expensive project. It has enormous policy consequences. And all along that 70-year timeline, you've got these little blips of energy ministers who change about every 12 months, sort of jumping up, trying to get up to speed, being sacked, moving on to something else over and over and over again. Trident in some ways is the ultimate example of that. And yet it's the one where it's at least possible that an overt political intervention could overturn, partly because I think it just captures people's attention in a way that these other ones don't because the the Trident story is also a 70-year story in which politicians come and go and the MOD carries on and the commitments run over a generation, but it's possible for a politician to come along and overturn that story. Um, But the Lansley, I mean, this is slight uh, disconnect, but the Lansley reforms, were they then a slight outlier in that broader history of the NHS in that they were such an explicit and sort of hurry-up attempt to apply these ideas and it turned out crudely and ineffectively, but to, to apply them led from the top by the politicians. Well, to be, to be fair to Lansley, a phrase I never thought I would use, he was building on what New Labour did when they were in power, and they in turn were building on what Ken Clark did in the 90s. So when you talk about Lansley, you're talking about one of those longer periods of time which does span not just multiple iterations of the same party, but uh, multiple parties in power. A... 20-year period, I guess, where there was a a conscious effort to try to implement many of the ideas of the American health system, but not the American health system that we think we know, not a kind of full-on private insurance or you die system, but the more statist end of the... The uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Exactly. Pre-Obamacare. Yes, pre-Obamacare, yes. I mean, this is something that a lot of people don't appreciate about America, how much state funding there is and how not just Medicare, but even some of the private care systems where they try to control costs are actually moving towards the NHS, even as the NHS is trying to move towards them. So there is that kind of weird, weird convergence. But what happened, as far as I understand it, with the Lansley reforms was that they ran up against a really fundamental problem, which, strangely, even though it's blindingly obvious, 
never really seemed to occur to them, which was that if you are looking for an efficient healthcare system, the cheapest, the one that works, it's the NHS. As soon as you start bringing in the ideas, as Labour did, of patient choice, oh, you can choose any hospital. If you don't like this doctor, go to another one. As soon as you start bringing in this idea of contracts and and hospitals competing with each other, which is what Lansley did, then you're going to start raising the costs. And Lansley's thing was he was entering this world where Labour, alongside their reforms, had at least poured in a huge amount of money. And he remembered he was a Conservative in the sense of competition, contracts, privatisation and so on. But he forgot he was a Conservative in the sense of austerity and... It was when austerity really started to bite that his reforms hit the buffers. All the hospitals started to go into the red. The GP commissioners couldn't cope. And that's the system that the current regime is trying to respond to. And so there are the politicians like Lansley who do or don't test some of these ideas to destruction and forget some of the things that make them work. Then underneath you've got the wider 20-year story of how these ideas come from the States or or somewhere else and how they enter the system and how hard they are to dislodge. And then under that, you've got the demographic story, which is also the thing that you pick up on, you mentioned earlier, Mm. which is this is about an ageing population. And when I was reading your piece, I was thinking about how different it is to the birth of the NHS. And I was trying to look up some comparative figures, but sort of demographic figures. So when the NHS was born in the late 40s. Britain was a society of children, basically. I don't know what the exact figure is, but well more than a third of the population were children. And a relatively small proportion of the population were pensioners, as they would be called. Infant mortality was really high. It was, Mm. I think it was like 50, something like 50, just coming down below 50 after the Second World War, and it's now below four. Mm. Uh, So the NHS was, I mean, it was lots of things, but it was about caring for children. That was a big part of what it was. And you write about the heartlessness of a world before the NHS where the death of a child had to somehow be the responsibility of the parent. Obviously, it's still about caring for children, and we hear those stories all the time, and anyone with a child who encounters the NHS always has this account of how miraculous it is. But that's not what its primary function is anymore. It has changed. It is now about caring for and prolonging the life of old people. And that shift is huge, isn't it? Just the orientation of a service like this A children's service has become an old people's service. Well, it is a huge change. The background that you're talking about, absolutely right. I hesitate to agree that that shift has taken place. I think what we're seeing is a resistance to that shift and an attempt to cope. Some of the discourse and some of the conduct of the system, if you want to talk about it like that, has been sort of resistive rather than accommodating to the demographic change. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's in denial because who can deny it? They, they are the ones who see these frail elderly people. But I think what I'm working around to saying is that, and, and I suppose I speak partly as, as somebody who's heading for that direction myself. I'm 55 now, you know. Am I old? Am I middle-aged? Uh, I certainly know where I'm going. There is that sort of sense of fear of conflict of is this organization really about helping me to live for longer or is it just about stringing me along with the minimum intervention 
until my inevitable pegging out, while it focuses its real, not just energies and resources, but interest and excitement on the young and, and the fit and the, the middle-aged and um, the glamour, if you like. I mean, I know it sounds a strange and terrible thing to say, the glamour of cancer, the glamour of heart bypass operations, the way that somebody in the prime of life can go into a hospital grievously ill and return to their, to their great task, whatever that task is. And as I said in the, in the piece, sometimes you feel that there's something tremendously positive about the idea of everyone's going to be treated at home, that the new medical staff of the new NHS are going to be like the catches in the rye, they're going to be sort of trying to, to stop the old people falling off the cliff and just letting them play at home well, as long as they can. But sometimes it's like the hospitals want bouncers. You know, keep them out. Sorry, you're too old. Stay at home. I'm sorry, you know, you've come in here for a day. It's far too long. Get out. I think... Most of us now have heard a story about a relative who was pushed out of hospital, not necessarily too early, but certainly in quite a brisk and surprisingly fast manner. I was looking at some of the material for the the plans for the future of some of the regions around Leicestershire, and Lincoln has come up with this little video explaining how there are too many old people. And you see this map of Lincolnshire and you see the little, little old people kind of popping up with a kind of squeaking noise, like a zombie apocalypse. It's, um, and you quote Ian McEwan and his view yes. that if it wasn't for the old people, we wouldn't have voted for Brexit. Exactly. So exactly. if we had a few fewer of them, we'd be better off Exactly. And I, I do feel that there's a connection here. I think that on some level, some perhaps subliminal level, there is a relationship between the Brexit vote and what's happening in the NHS and the general lengthening of, of lifespan. The stretching out of the distance from the youngest to the oldest, whether you're talking about the different experiences of the old to the young, the, the extreme difference in a 70 or 80-year-old person's youth and the youth of a youth now, or whether you're talking about just that sense of we're competing for the same health service. It's not something that, that people are used to openly articulating, but it hovers there as a fear, as an anxiety, as an unease. And it's reflected in the concern about this home first sort of policy. So do you think it actually underpins the big generational gap in political behaviour now. So yes. I mean, Bre- Brexit is the example you gave, and it features in other places too. But the fact that there is, and you, you kind of capture it in your piece, there's a kind of gulf of understanding. It's And in some ways of sympathy as well, but they, it cuts across party divides too. And so the NHS might be part of the thing that's pulling us apart now. I think so, yes, yes, yes. And Which is not what it was when it a, was founded. It's not about a lack of sympathy it's about a lack of identification. That it's very can... hard to imagine what it's like to be old. Yes, and it's very hard to imagine that an old person wasn't born that way. As I said in the piece, this, this is, is one of life's tricks, that just when your, your personal history is at its most rich, it's when your medical history crowns it out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. There's another force at work here too. I mean, and one of the amazing things about how you write about this is you capture all of these pressures on this single system. And that's automation and what it's doing to the labour force, potentially or what it will do to the labour force. So you talk about this economic theory, which is that the NHS is going to get more expensive because as robots replace other jobs, it drives up the wages of the, the humans who remain in work. And since in health, most jobs are not for now replaceable by robots they are human facing jobs wages go up in health sectors whereas in other sectors the robots can come and do that work and you are I think rightly skeptical about some of this not least because you don't see the wages going up no, in the I'm, other sectors I see the too. I see the analysis um, and I agree with it it's it's that I I don't I can't quite see the mechanism by which it's going to be redressed at the risk of drawing attention to inadequacies in my own piece, it's something that I just didn't have time to really pursue to its conclusion because there is a mystery here, an uncertainty. There are a lot of assumptions in the idea that the problems of the NHS at the moment are caused not just by not enough money being put in, but also by the uh, rapid increase in the number of elderly people, frail elderly people. That increase is certainly happening. But it's not the data to say that this is the big cause of the NHS's problems is a little uncertain. And it may in fact be that what you're talking about, this problem of efficiency and automation, is actually the biggest problem of all. The economist who identified this was a guy called Baumol. I think Baumol or the Baumol, an American economist who died a few years ago. He pointed out that there were some areas, like car manufacturing, for example, or any kind of manufacturing, really. I mean, when I wrote recently about the Cadbury's factory being moved from the west of England to Poland, I focused on the loss of jobs at the end of this factory's life, 500. But in fact, even before it was moved to Poland, it had gone from 5,000 to 500, doing the same work or more. And that had only taken less than 40 years. So machines had replaced 4,500 people in a relatively short space of time. Whereas there are all these other spheres where you simply cannot do that. You cannot automate. Or if you do, it's not the same. Beaumont used the example of a string quartet, that you can't make a string quartet more efficient by taking out two of the musicians, because then you just have a duo. And you might have two robots playing the cello, but maybe that people wouldn't pay to, to see that. The way he described it was, OK, here you have these car manufacturers. They go down from, let's say, 1,000 to uh, 500 workers. The way he described it was that the workers who remain share in the, the wealth. The productivity the gains. The productivity gains. And their wages go up. And the only way that the wages of the string quartet can go up to match the wages of the car workers, which seems fair in a, in a society where they're all working hard, 
The only way that can happen is for the prices of tickets to increase or perhaps for the government to subsidise the quartet more or whatever. But there's a problem there. Clearly something has to change that is not just, that can't be solved with efficiency. And it's the same with those services like health where really you cannot automate the work of a nurse or a doctor. You can go some way with smart technology. And I think there's a lot of optimism in the future when kind of the old people are a bit more tech savvy, you'll be able to do more. But there's, there's real limits. You can't send a drone in to, to change bedsheets in a house where you've never been before. And that's, this is when you marvel at the ingenuity of, of the human race, that they can just go to a strange house, sort something out. So these people have to be paid. And it's worked up until now by other parts of the government taking less money by some sort of natural process. So, for example, we spend a lot less on defence than we used to. And rather than having to increase taxes to pay for the NHS, the NHS simply expanded into other areas of government spending. But now we've reached the point where that's not really happening anymore. And without starting to look more fundamentally at what affordable actually means and what is money and what are taxes... You've got to start looking at, at that level because the, the way the world is established, the efficiency benefiting industries are pulling away, not only in the sense of becoming ever more robot dependent, but also in the sense of funneling the gains to a smaller and smaller group of people. So that's happening on the one hand. But then the organisations like the NHS and indeed the health services of every country in the world are still facing the problems of needing to, to come up with payment for, for new treatment and to try and keep pace with the rest of the economy. Because there is that Japanese version of the story, the, the ultimate ageing society, but also unlike ours, to a certain extent, one that's entirely resistant to immigration. And they've pretty much, their only way out of this is the robots in the sense that the hope is that the robots will change the bedsheets, um, but it'll take 20, 30 years. And I mean, I don't know how Japan will manage that transition, but we, we can't wait 20 or 30 years for the, the bedsheet changing robots to come along. And it does cut across the politics of immigration, too, of course, in this. Yes, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Japan because, and interesting you say that unlike us, um, Japan <laughs> well, is very hedged, resistant to, immig- <laughs> to immigration because that's exactly the point that we are becoming more like Japan in the sense In all that, sorts um, of ways, yeah. Yes. I know, I think that Japan is a much closer vision of our future than we realise. Yes, I, um, it, it, when Brexit first happened, there were people who did make that comparison. And, and I remember reading some commentary about how the Japanese were baffled by. Brexit and thinking, well, we're just trying to be more like you, you know. Uh, I mean, it's not quite true. Yes, the Japanese are resistant to immigration, but they do get around it with a large pool of migrant labour with, with very few rights. And yes, when I mentioned Japan in the context of the aging population on my reporting for this piece, people were very, very much on it. They, they talked about meetings with, with providers of assistive technology and so on. But I suppose what one would hope would be that that the young old will be the ones who end up helping the old old. It may be that, that the real problem is that we've extended lifespan without a corresponding increase in health span. The consequence of that is 
people are going to have to retire even later. And From what jobs are left? Yes, yes. But I think you do have to start wondering about how resources are distributed because you're back at that baffling point that we have reached so many times before and somehow managed to get through where every time automation is brought in, we all seem to end up working harder. And I mean, I... I and some people getting a lot richer. Yes, that's right. That's right. But not um, many. There is a bigger cat-eating-its-tail problem. And this is maybe when you start to get to the real heart of the matter. And it's not a very comfortable heart, which is that this idea of the exploitative wealthy who are getting more and more of the, of the cream from the benefits of efficiency and automation, it's open to challenge in the sense that if you look at what is actually owned in the world in terms of wealth. Yes, rich individuals and families do own a lot. Sovereign wealth funds do own a lot. But the biggest slice of the pie is those old people in Leicestershire uh, and all the other old people, the people who have private pensions. So many of the problems from the NHS are because the tax take is too low, the tax take is too, too low because international corporations have become very, very clever, very efficient, but also very tax efficient, very clever at hiding their, their money from uh, the tax man or just avoiding ways of paying it. And the beneficiaries of that cleverness in many cases are pensioners who have private pension plans. Uh, some of them are very rich, but not all of them are. Some of them are just you know comfortably off or, or not even that. And so you have this big problem of resource allocation. And I think at the moment, ideas of some kind of wealth tax, rather than fiddling around with income tax, seem not so much like the most hopeful way forward for Britain, but the only way forward, really. So what, what confidence do you have then to bring it back to politics, that, that we have a political system that's capable of doing anything other than fudging these challenges? Low, very low, particularly in the current polarised climate. And that generational divide makes it harder, presumably. I mean, if that generational divide cuts across our politics. I mean, the complication is, in a way, the Corbyn story, given the fact that his support is, pro not by no means exclusively, but primarily people under the median age in Britain, and yet... Is that the case? It is, it I, right. is the case. Yeah. So 45 seems to be the, the tipping point. But is it not also the case that he can't afford to lose... None of them can afford to lose a big segment. And also, no. most of his supporters for the young, surely he has a, such a high proportion of elderly people that he can't afford to alienate them. No, he can't. And he, he's, Which is why, presumably, he hasn't endorsed the idea of... I don't think he's endorsed the idea, for example, of a a re-examination of, of property tax. Not yet. Not yet, no. And it's a very fragile coalition because it depends upon all those students who turned out in the university towns turning out. But like you say, it does actually... You can't win with mm. that group. You can't even really win with the under-45s. And yet that generational divide, it cuts across British politics in all the ways you've, you've described. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of the politician who can actually reconnect the two halves. I mean, I suppose... Because Theresa May is putting her bets on the other side of the in a way, line. In a way, the, the Cameron years 
did show that you could have a manifesto and then do something else. Um, I mean, those Lansley reforms that we spent quite a lot of time talking about at the beginning, they were carried out in explicit contradiction of the manifesto denial that there would be a top-down reorganization imposed by Whitehall. They said there will not be a top-down uh, reorganization imposed from Whitehall in their manifesto, and a few months later they announced a top-down organization imposed from Whitehall. So what I'm saying is um, you can imagine a situation where Corbyn comes in and he gets his reports from the civil servants and he's concerned about about the NHS and social care. And he says, right, we're just going to do it. We're going to impose a wealth tax. I know we didn't say we would, but this is what we're going to do. Because it's a crisis. Because it's a crisis, exactly. It's an emergency. Uh, and, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. It's, um, it's, it is something that happens. Uh, and you can justify it if the situation is severe enough. And, and if you are a, a smart enough politician to do that and a powerful enough leader, I'm not quite sure whether that describes our future Prime Minister, Mr Corbyn, but we'll see, perhaps. So just to finally bring it back to Leicestershire, as you said, it's not, you didn't go there looking for the the breaking point. And you went there because all of the forces that are pressing in on the NHS are pressing in there. But is there, if you think sort of three, five, ten years ahead, it's hard to see this as being sustainable. And each winter, every government is terrified that something will break. I mean, that the, the system in some sense will get to that crisis where it's no longer just a fudging through operation. It's actually just an emergency. Did you see signs of that in Leicestershire? I mean, did you get a sense that not this winter, maybe not next winter, but in three or four winters time? That no, could I, think, I think it's happening now. I think it is broken. Oh, OK. <laughs> I, I, uh, it depends what you mean by broken. Is, is it, it just, um, oh, a few people fall over the edge, but a million don't? it's okay. I would say that as soon as anyone starts falling over the edge, it's broken. That certainly happened in the east of England uh, last winter. If you have more than a dozen people who died because the ambulance just took way, way too long to get there, uh, and the reason the ambulance took way, way too long to get there was because they were all stuck waiting outside A&E, and the reason they were all stuck waiting outside A&E was because the hospital didn't have enough staff and beds, um, and the social care system didn't have enough space to move them through. That's broken. Although things don't seem to have got quite as bad as that in the East Midlands, where Leicestershire is. I heard enough stories, and I, I wasn't able to put all of these in the article, about people who were lying in extreme pain for hours and hours and hours waiting for an ambulance when the response time is supposed to be so much faster that I feel it's, it's broken. Because the government feels it survived the winter. It survived, but it, if it's about survival, then that probably means that well, some, the government people, survived for some people didn't, <laughs> I mean, that's what... didn't make it. Yes. Yeah. So we're past the point of brokenness. So if, this if will it, just get incrementally worse. It will get more worse. broken. Yeah, yeah. So the cracks, the cracks have started to appear, I think is what I'm saying. And then the cracks will widen. But the other point I would make in response to that is just the mood that I encountered and I'm very sensitive now to what people actually say. And if it's a politician, then you, you pass their words very, very carefully and you think, what do they mean? What is this about? And I'm not really sure why it should be any different for anyone that you're quoting uh, and listening to in an article like this. Because after all, 
everyone votes, everyone is representative. And I think everyone brings a personal philosophy to the polling booth. So I was taken aback with how people didn't seem to feel that the NHS was forever, that it, it, might, it might break. People have already, are already allowing for this. And that really startled me. I thought it would be all about how can we save this, but I'm not talking about a lot of people, but just if anyone is, is thinking that, it's, it's interesting that as soon as I started talking about how can we get more money in, people got a sort of far away look in their eyes and started talking about some other country's system, some other fantasy of a, of a painless way or perhaps painless only for them, where they would somehow not have to pay any more but we'd get a better service if we did it like America or we did it like Ireland or if we just eased the sponges out of the system. I think there is a tendency amongst the most vociferous supporters of the NHS, and I think this is probably true of a lot of politicians as well, to just assume that everyone is is behind the NHS. It's our national religion. Yeah. But we're losing um, our faith. And right? I think people have got so used to the idea of, of not paying any more tax that they just don't think it's possible. They don't believe that the country can actually support this. I'm not being absolute about this, but just references to um, we can't afford it. And as soon as you start talking about... Um, Raising taxes, people start talking about they waste so much money. These are also cracks in the system. There is the crack in, in how it actually functions, but there's also the cracks in people's confidence. And if one sign of a real problem is people dying, uh, another sign is is people quietly clicking on an ad for private medical insurance because they don't really trust the current setup if you want to read james's article and you should it's long but it's definitely worth it um, it's on the lrb website we'll also post a link on twitter at tp podcast underscore you can also read the whole archive of his writing on all the things we talked about the post office housing everything else other lrb writers that we've interviewed we'll, we'll post the links again on twitter john lanchester mary beard do check those out and do please join us again next week my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. 
Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.